We're turning once again to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. We'll begin the reading in verse 17. First Peter 17. Let's all hear the Lord's word. For it is better... If the will of God if be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, but once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure, wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. May God add his blessing to that reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you please bow with me for a moment in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in the Savior's name we come to the throne. We thank thee that we have the privilege of preaching the word of God and that there are are a people, Lord, who have the privilege of hearing the word preached. We all confess our need of the Holy Ghost to understand and to believe and to embrace the word and to obey it. Oh God, we pray for help to preach Christ this day. Revive us, refresh us, renew a right spirit within us. Give us a word in season now, a word that will truly change us, not for a day, but forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. As you can see from the passage that we read this morning, this whole idea of suffering is still on the mind of Peter, or should I say, it's still on the mind of the Holy Spirit, since he is the one who gave Peter these words that these Christians, many of whom were new believers, were being persecuted simply because they were Christians has been an overarching theme in these first three chapters. There was heaviness through manifold temptations. Their faith had been tried with fire. They had been suffering wrongfully, Peter says, suffering for righteousness' sake. Evil men were speaking evil things about them. They were making false accusations against them. It's patently clear that they were under attack, not only from a hostile world, 
but from the prince of this world, the devil himself. So these were hard times for these Christians. This was difficult to the extreme. But running alongside of this major theme of suffering, we've seen that there is another leading thought, and that is one of submission. What God has made clear in these first three chapters is that he's very much concerned that his people, how they respond to suffering. He's very much concerned about it. How they respond to sorrows and trials from whatever quarter in a way that is becoming to him and to his son and to their profession as Christians. As Paul put it to Titus in chapter 2, verse 10 of that epistle, that they would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Adorning the doctrine of God. The Greek word for adorn is cosmeo. We get our word cosmetic from the root of that word. And its basic meaning, a cosmetic, is something designed to beautify the outward appearance of something, to make it attractive, to make it appealing. It's not fundamentally about a cover-up by cover girl made to hide the blemishes, the wrinkles, to deal with the deformities. I have to say there's a whole lot of that going on, I'm afraid, among God's people where all it's about is trying to cover up the real person with something that is only surface, something that's only cosmetic in nature. But what Paul and Peter are referring to is responding to suffering in such a way that unbelievers will see our good works, especially our submission in the face of the suffering, in the face of the havoc that they have created for our lives, that they will see it and they will, well, some will be silenced, Peter says, and shamed by their behavior for their false accusations, for the wrongful uh, affliction, or with some it will turn out to be the means of their turning to Christ for salvation. They'll be drawn to the Savior. That's what this adorning is about. That's why God's very much concerned about how you and I respond to the afflictions and the trials of our faith. It's always about being attractive. Attracting others to our God. Attracting others to the gospel. It's not about attracting them to us but attracting them to Christ. It's in this context that Peter has been encouraging them to endure the suffering. Don't try to get revenge. Don't treat them as they're treating you. Hold your tongues. Don't strike back. Don't look for a fight. Rather, he says, seek peace. And pursue it. 
Peter argues in verse 17 that if, if it's God's will that you suffer, it's better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now, this is the third time Peter brings up the suffering of Christ. First time is in chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what the prophets did, or what manner of time the Spirit of God was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, first mentioned. Chapter 2, verse 25, second time. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now the third time here in verse 18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And it's the very fact Christ's suffering that Peter uses to warn Christians to be prepared for. The very first verse chapter 4 For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Using verse 18 as my text this morning, I want to preach on the suffering of Christ for sinners and their sin. The suffering of Christ for sinners and their sin. I'm going to tell you once again the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I'm not going to repeat anything new to your ears, I don't believe. You folks have been saved for too long for me to do that. That you need to be reminded of. That I need to preach. That the Lord wants us. He certainly is the sufferings of Christ in this book. He wants me to emphasize them. He wants you to have them emphasized in your own soul place. Let's look at the record of Christ's sufferings. The record of Christ's sufferings. Note that word for at the beginning of verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. He's been talking about their suffering. Now he says, for Christ hath also suffered. After stating that it's it's, it's better to suffer for well-doing, for doing good, than for doing evil, He says, for, because Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Of all the encouragements, of all the motives that may move Christians to suffer for Christ, when the time comes to suffer for Christ, one of the strongest and most oft-used arguments in Scripture by the Holy Ghost, and therefore one that Christians should think of often and make use of often is that Christ has suffered for them and suffered for their sins. One of the strongest of all the arguments to endure suffering, to don't seek revenge, to not strike back, to hold your tongues, 
to seek peace and pursue it. To suffer wrongfully is that Christ has suffered for your sins. Just what about Christ's sufferings would the Holy Spirit want us to think about? What has Scripture recorded? There's a large enough record there of his sufferings. There's plenty of matter there for study. Since the Holy Ghost wants us to think often upon his sufferings, then we go to the Scripture to find out what it has to say. What is the record about the Lord's sufferings? I mean, Peter has just summarized the life of Christ. Nothing else added to it. Christ has suffered. His sufferings from day one are recorded. From day one. His life began with suffering. There was no room for him in the end, remember? No room, no place for him. He was born in a cattle stall and a feeding trough for the animals became his makeshift crib. None of you would dream about putting an infant, your firstborn child, in a feeding trough. But there was no other place to put him. His father and mother are poor, dirt poor. And so the Prince of Glory is born into poverty. No wealth, no money lying about, hand to mouth existence. Early on, Herod seeks to kill the young child and he is whisked away to live in a strange land of Egypt, a strange people where he's kept hidden until Herod is dead. Just a little boy. His world is turned upside down. As he grew in wisdom, that's what the gospel writer says, as he grew in wisdom, his understanding of the sinfulness of men's hearts would have grown as well. His understanding of this world as his wisdom grew would have developed. And surely, surely that was grieving to him. A perfect mind, a sinless mind, grasping with every passing year, so to speak, as he grows and grows and grows, understanding the sinfulness of men's hearts and their hatred towards his father. That was suffering. Then there are his sufferings during his ministry. As soon as he's baptized by John the Baptist, Christ is driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness where he spends 40 days in fasting. I read that, but I don't have a clue as to what that's like. Fasting for 40 days? You don't think that was suffering? At the end of it all, 
when his own body is now weak from not having eaten for over a month, the serpent comes to tempt him to sin. He pulls out his best weapons to try to get the Lord to sin, to fall prey to his temptations. It was suffering. Hebrews 2, verse 18, speaks of Christ. He himself hath suffered being tempted. The temptation in the wilderness was suffering for Christ. And then there are those passing statements in the Gospels that open up little windows into his daily suffering. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. God in the flesh is tired from the journey. He just needs to sit down for a while and rest. Brothers and sisters, there won't be any need to rest in our glorified body. We, we, we won't need to sit down. We won't grow weary. But in his earthly body, Jesus Christ, though perfect, got worn out. There arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. You know, when it describes the, the ship being covered with the waves, it is a tempest like you can't begin to imagine. That boat is being tossed all over the place, but he's so tired. He's so weary. He sleeps through it all. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. I don't have a home. His own people called him a madman. A blasphemer. They regularly called him an imposter. A glutton and a drunkard. Calling Jesus a drunkard and a glutton. Wine-bibber, an agent of Satan, an emissary of the devil, working with the devil. In spite of all the good that he went about doing every day, they painted him as some wicked man, a liar, a deceiver of the people. He heard that continually, everywhere he went. Oh, yes, the multitudes thronged him, but the vast majority of Judaism was certainly against this one. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Then you have the record of his sufferings at the end of his ministry. 
By far these were the worst sufferings because they came at the hand of his father. It was in Gethsemane that Christ began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy and said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Sore amazed. Shocked by what he was feeling. Shocked at the experience he was undergoing in the Garden of Gethsemane when his father began to show his wrath upon his son. Shocked. How could he really have known what that would be like in the flesh? Luke tells us being in agony he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. We're talking about intense stress, intense pressure that burst the capillaries in his forehead. He is in agony. He's suffering. Groaning. I've heard my past years of working in hospitals, I've heard the patients groaning in pain. No pain medicine would help them. They're beyond it. And you can hear them down the hall just groaning. Oh, these were far worse sufferings for Jesus. You ever just sat down all alone somewhere and tried to imagine listening to the Lord groaning in the garden as he's on his face crying and pouring his heart out to his father? What did that sound like? He's astounded that this wrath of his father is being poured out upon him. He prays to his father, the writer of Hebrews says, with strong cryings and tears, in that he feared. Strong cryings. There wasn't any kind of milk toast whispering. These were strong cryings. watered with his tears. David captures that scene in Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. But his sufferings weren't over. In the garden, he was arrested by the temple guard, dragged off to the Sanhedrin to be tried, the Jewish council.
condemned by them and dragged to Pilate. During that time when he's being interviewed by Pilate, his, his disciple Peter, who had sworn he would die with him, has denied him three times, and he knew it. Abandoned by all but John. Herod sends him over to Pilate. He's made fun of there and shipped back to Pilate from Herod's room. There he's condemned to death. You know the story. How many times have you read it? He was brutally beaten, shamefully treated. They spit in his face. They put a bag over his head and hit him with clenched fist again and again. We would say of someone they were beaten to a pulp. That's what they did. He was forced to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. Taken to a place called Calvary where he was crucified. Spikes driven through his wrists and through his ankles. Nailed to a wooden cross. Every breath he took was agonizing. Thirsting. Hadn't slept for hours. But this was not the worst of his suffering. There was a darkness that came over all the earth for three hours. And for those three hours, Jesus Christ experienced the infinite wrath of a sin-hating God. He experienced the equivalent of eternity in hell. For the law said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Separation from God. That's the price that had to be paid. The punishment had to be carried out. Three hours of total darkness. That was when he was forsaken. He suffered, we sing, he suffered and died alone. Someone has said that these sufferings of his soul were the soul of his sufferings. His soul. The darkness. The abandonment. None but the one who suffered and the one who inflicted that suffering could ever know the depths of Christ's suffering. No. David raises the question, or I should say Moses raises the question in Psalm 90, Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Who knoweth? How powerful God's anger actually is towards sin. No man does. Is there any wonder why he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief? 
Surely it was a messianic utterance that Jeremiah made in Lamentations. Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Oh, he was afflicted by his father. Suffering, suffering, suffering. That's the record of his life, the record of his suffering. And we don't know the depths he went to. But I will tell you this, the Holy Ghost wants you and wants me to think often upon it. And that means we don't spend all of our time thinking about our suffering. All about our trials and troubles. The Holy Ghost is saying, you come into them, you immediately get yourself to Christ and think upon his suffering. We come to the reason for Christ's suffering, the reason for it. Christ also hath once suffered for or on account of sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He suffered, as you think about just that brief summary we have of his life. He suffered all that he suffered because of the sins of the unjust, that's the unrighteous, men and women and young people and children. He suffered because of their sins. Unjust. So in the first place... Christ's sufferings, Christ's sufferings were penal. Got to understand this one. We can weep our eyes out all day long about the awful agony that Christ went through, but if we don't understand what it was all about, what it was all for, we're not going to walk away with a clear understanding of the gospel and why this makes all the difference in how we live and how we face our own suffering. His sufferings were penal. I mean that they were sufferings inflicted as legal punishment. Penalty, we get our word penalty, penal. Legal punishment. But what crimes did Christ commit for which he needed to be punished? We know there were none. No crimes. No penalties for his behavior. Peter writes that he was, it was the, the, the just who suffered. It was the, the righteous one who came under this afflicting, punishing rod of God. To obey God's law was as natural for Christ as it was for him to breathe the air. So perfect was his obedience to his God that he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Nothing wrong with him. Sure, but you've heard that. Penal suffering. You know, one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that Christ had to suffer... I mean, death could have been brought about any number. It could have been a very quick, swift death, right? It was, if it was just dying to bring about redemption, 
There's all kinds of ways to die and to die painlessly. But there had to be suffering. And one of the great reasons for his suffering was to manifest to all mankind God's displeasure, God's hatred for sin. That he would put his son to that. He would afflict his son so that man would see, I hate it. I abominate sin. It displeases me. Why do you think it was written in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and Galatians chapter 3? Paul repeats it. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Cursed. Wants it to be known. Anyone that hangs on a tree is cursed. Cursed by God. So Christ was made a curse for us. Condemned by divine justice, even though he deserved nothing but blessing, he suffered. God wanted man to see the depths of his hatred, his abhorrence of sin. I'll put my son to death to show you that. I'll bruise him. I'll bring into the depths of suffering. I will abandon him on the cross so that you will see how much I abhor him. In a very small way, you understand that. You've raised children. Children have broken the rules. Right? Right? They've had to suffer for breaking the rules. Sometimes, depending on what they did, the degree they had to suffer varied. Right? Jesus Christ, having broken no rules, committed no sins, is punished for our sins. And the punishment was horrendous. Awful. God was saying, I am holy. And I hate sin and I will punish it even when that sin is merely charged to the account of my son who is sinless. That's the reason, one of the reasons why he had to suffer. They were penal sufferings. Christ's sufferings, moreover, were vicarious. Peter writes here, the just, when he says the just for the unjust, he means that Christ died in the place of the unjust. In my place condemned he stood, wrote the hymn writer. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. Or as Peter put it back in chapter 2, verse 24, Christ, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the tree. 
So take on board when you say he died for me what you're actually saying. In my stead, in my place, he took it all. He bore it all. It was vicarious. And I was in him. I was on the cross with him. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world. I suffered in Christ. The eternal wrath of God. But he he undertook to endure all that suffering. So I would not have to suffer hell. Forever. Christ's sufferings were also something else. They were atoning. That's the reason for it. They were atoning. It's not that Christ just suffered for sin to show God's displeasure for sin. And it's not that Christ suffered for sin in our stead, vicariously, he did. But Christ suffered in order that through his suffering, the sins of his people would be forgiven and they would be sent away forever. They would be pardoned. They would be covered forever from God's sight. That was the purpose. That's why. He actually came to bring that about. Because we need a covering for our sin. If there's no covering, then there's no hiding place from the wrath of God. Then we have to suffer for them. And we have to suffer forever in hell for them. If there is no atonement, if there is if there's no answer. If there's no sending our sin away, if, if, if Christ does not bear away our sins, then we have to bear them ourselves. And Jesus died. He suffered for our sins. He suffered to remove them forever from God's sight. Hebrews 9.26, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice, read suffering there, of himself. That's why he appeared, to put it away. Not to make it a possibility to put it away, but to actually put it away. We're not talking about something potential here. But something actual. He appeared to do this. And when he cried out, finished, he's saying, I did it. I accomplished it. I put away their sin from my father's sight forever. Let me read you a few more texts of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God hath made him sin for us. That's suffering, to be made sin for us, suffering who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he suffered that we might be made righteous. He was made a sinner, made, constituted, treated as a sinner, that we might be 
constituted in God's sight as righteous and without sin. And so John would go on to say, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ, that's real suffering there, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son cleanseth us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is the blood of suffering. He suffered and bled and died. The shedding of the blood that he voluntarily poured out upon Calvary. It was all to atone for, to cover over sin. Colossians 1.14, In Him we have redemption through His blood, read suffering. In Him we have redemption through His suffering, even the forgiveness of sin. And finally, in Hebrews 1, verse 3, He purged our sins. The word purged means purified. Just wash them all away. Well, now. Whiter than snow, that's how the Word of God describes those whose sins have been washed away. Tell me, do you view yourself like that? If you say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved, I'm a child of God. How often do you view yourself, I'm whiter than snow? I'm holy as Jesus himself. Well, I'll follow up with another question and it'll tell me the answer to that first question. How often do you think on the sufferings of Christ? How often do you give thought to why he was there suffering? Why did he suffer? The suffering was not just something to go through. It was actually a means to an end. Atoning. Thirdly and finally, the results of Christ's suffering. The results. In the first place, first result, they were so complete and his sufferings were so successful that they will never be repeated again. Note, please, that word once. We're circling, I think. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The word denotes once and for all, never to be repeated. Once and forever he has suffered for sins. Jesus Christ so completed this work of satisfying God's just demands for the sins of God's people that nothing remains to be done. There's no other sacrificing that needs to be done. There's no other suffering that needs to be repeated either by you or by Christ. Nothing. You, you, you do understand now, especially, why the whole doctrine of purgatory in the Church of Rome is so false. It's saying you've got to suffer. You have to suffer yourself to get out of purgatory. You've got to suffer yourself to have those sins, those imperfections dealt with. It's saying that the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that the suffering of Christ was not sufficient. But he has suffered once and for all and forever. 
Now, that wasn't true of the Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be repeated daily because there was never, ever the, the hint of the truth that there could be, through the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats, forgiveness for sin. It couldn't be done. It was never designed to take away sin. Those were only figures and types and object lessons to teach them about what the Messiah would do when he would come. He would suffer. He would shed his blood. And that would put away sin once and for all. That would be the last suffering. All the suffering of the flocks, the sheep, the lambs, the turtle doves. As their throats were slit and the blood was poured out. The pain they endured. All just typical. But it's impossible that the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats could remove sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down. My suffering is done. My work is done. It's complete. I've put away the sins, all of the sins of my people forever. They'll never condemn me. Never. Never will he have to suffer again, nor are we going to suffer again. Never more, the hymn writer writes, never more shall God, Jehovah, smite the shepherd with the sword. Ne'er again shall cruel sinners set at naught our glorious Lord. J. Wilbur Chapman wrote those words. Never again. It's complete. Final result. Christ's suffering brings sinners to God. Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. So, there is a distance between God and man. If you've got to be brought, it means there's a distance. That, that, that means that man in his, in his natural fallen lost estate is ignorant of God. He doesn't know him. He lives away, way off. There's no relationship with God distant. If you've got to be brought to God, it means there's not a relationship there with God. Someone's got to bring you into that. No relationship. There's no, there's no friendship with God. There's no, there's no fellowship with God. How can there be when there's distance? But he's far from God. And matter of fact, he's quite an enemy of God. Forget about friendship. He's an enemy. That's what the Word says. What Peter is talking about here is simply reconciliation. Two so far apart, and Jesus by his sufferings has actually reconciled them. They brought them together, brought them near to each other. Colossians 1, listen to what Paul says, verses 20 and 21. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him... Now think about the blood of his cross. Just plug in the word suffering. 
through the suffering of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Enemies. By your wicked works. You're no longer enemies, but you've been, rec- you've been made friends of God. What, what, what does that mean? It bring us to God? How would you interpret that? You're going to stop. I mean, he could have said it like that, right? But he didn't. That he might bring us to God. Well, since being far from God means that we're ignorant of God, surely it means, surely Peter means that he brings us into the knowledge of God. We know him. And to know him is eternal life, Jesus said, did he not? This is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So the sufferings of Christ bring us to a knowledge of God. Do they really? What do they teach us about God? Do they not teach us that God is holy? Do they not teach us that God is wise? That he could be the just one and the justifier of the ungodly? What wisdom is displayed in the sufferings of Christ? The only way that wicked enemies of God could actually be made friends of God. That's wisdom that you and I can't begin to grasp. Does it not show to us the love of God? Do we not learn about that in the sufferings of Jesus Christ? That he would put his son through such agony that he might have us as his own. That he might deliver us from our destruction. That's love. Beyond compare. I don't get it. I don't comprehend that. I know this. In and of myself, I am unlovely and unlovable. But it's by Christ's sufferings, by his pain, his agony, his death, I am made an object of God's love. A love that will be shown throughout all eternity. One of, the, one of the great joys, I think, will be when we are with the Lord forever. It'll be a continual realization. He loved me that much. I never knew. I didn't see it then. I see it now. My, how he loved me. Jesus does that by his sufferings. He brings us to the knowledge of God. His power, his wisdom, his love, his goodness, his holiness. By his suffering, he brings us into the favor of God. Oh, his favor is not to have the favor of God, is to have the wrath of God. 
but he brings us into a standing of grace, and it will always be a standing of grace. Nothing you, as a child of God, will ever do will remove that standing. He will always deal with you in grace. He will always, always show you mercy because his mercy endureth forever. You can't out God's mercy. You can't fail one too many times. Where the Lord says, I'm through with you. It can never happen. Why is that? Because Christ suffered. Christ suffered to bring that grace to you. And God will not take away what he has given you. The suffering, as it brings us to God, also brings us into the likeness of God. You're brought near to God. You're brought to live in God's presence. It brings about a change. A transformation. We were so unlike him in our lost estate. These things meant nothing to us. We didn't care about atonement or blood or the cross. It was all about sin in the world and have a great time. But all that has changed. Why is that? Why do we have any interest at all in pleasing the Lord and wanting to be obedient? Because Christ suffered to bring that about. All of his agony, all of his tears, all the pain. was to bring about a change in us. That we might be like our Father in heaven. The sufferings of Christ brings us into fellowship with God. The cross draws us near. The cross calls us into fellowship with the Lord. The law sounded the loud trumpet, stay away. The cross says, come near. Come near. Don't walk at a distance from me. Come nearer, nearer, and nearer. Christ suffered that we could have fellowship with God. There's no fellowship with the Lord apart from his suffering. It's impossible. We're enemies, but the enemy part has ended. And now he's our friend and not our enemy. And he... He actually enjoys our fellowship. He actually enjoys it. He enjoys it when you pray to him. He enjoys it when you read his word, listen for his voice to speak through the written word. He enjoys it when you come to worship him. It pleases him. 
He's glad to see you. Never a furrow in his brow when you come to it. Just a smile. Can you hear the Lord? Can you hear him? Oh, you're here. So glad to see you. So good to hear from you. I enjoy these times when you come to me. They're precious to me. Won't you come more often? Won't you draw near to me more often? Don't stay away. Don't stay away. Jesus suffered that that might be our experience. That we might be brought to God. You can see now, can you not perhaps a little better why the Holy Ghost wants us to think often upon his sufferings? May the Lord write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's all pray. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for the the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's old yet ever new. We pray that thou wilt continue to thrill us with this truth. Keep us near the cross, we pray. For certainly the cross is the place of suffering for Christ. But, Lord, it's a place of, of wonder for us, of drawing near to Thee and being brought to Thee. Dismiss us, our God, with Thy fear and Thy favor upon us, and bring us back this evening to enjoy Thy presence in the house of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.